Welcome to Unapologetically You. I can't say enough wonderful things about our guest, Joey. He is an amazing human being. Seriously, our guest today is filled with some seriously fascinating information. Joey's journey to finding his true calling begins with depression, trouble in his marriage, and eventually realizing that self-love is the beginning of everything. Stay tuned for Joey's story. We hope you learn as much from Joey as we did. And check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetically You Podcast for pictures of our guests and inspirational posts. Welcome, Joey. We're so excited to have you and have you share your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Um, Joey, you have like a really cool job, a, a definitely like a different job than most people do. And uh, you're a hypnotherapist. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what hypnotherapy even is? Um, yeah, so I've been doing this for a couple of years. I started off part time, uh, but now I'm full time and I do this strictly online. So a lot of people don't didn't even know that could happen. But yeah, so I work exclusively online through zoom. Um, what is a clinical hypnotherapist? Well, it is a therapist who deals with the subconscious mind. Uh, we basically use hypnosis to access the subconscious, have your conscious mind, the analytical mind, you know, and that, you know, that mind that's very active all the time, analyzing everything. Well, hypnosis allows us to have that kind of part of the mind take, maybe not a backseat, but more of a role of an observer, rather than being so active. And it allows us to access the subconscious, which is, you know, your traumas, your belief systems, your programs essentially and with different skills and techniques we get to essentially reprogram the mind heal from past traumas uh, and a number of things uh, there's a lot of people who specialize in certain areas like myself who's trauma and depression that area and there's other people you've probably heard uh, help people quit smoking or uh, other phobias um, yeah so there's a lot of a lot of different ways to use hypnosis so what made you decide you wanted to become a hypnotherapist I was rock bottom in 2016 from major, major depression, something I dealt with for probably about 15 years or so, maybe a little less than that on and off. Uh, never really understood why it was just really at its darkest. I had a young baby at home, a three month old, two or three month old and a two year old at home, a wife that loved me dearly. And I told her I couldn't do it. I had to leave. No real logical thinking behind it. I just I was so depressed. I didn't know how to think. I thought they were better off without me. So I ended up just leaving and it was devastating to everybody, including my in-laws, my parents, my brothers, uh, my wife, my kids, um, myself, everybody involved. No one understood why the heck I was doing that. Joey always seems so happy-go-lucky, has a million dollar family, a boy and a girl, a good job. Wife has a good job. I had a you know, 10 acres in the country, a little hobby farm, like you name it, like everybody would just be like, Oh, he's got it all. Well, on the outside, it looked really good. And inside I was dying inside. I didn't know how to feel feelings really anymore. I was um, drinking a lot, um, not by myself, but I'd go out with the, you know, friends and make that an excuse to, to let loose. And I was doing a lot of things that were, I don't know, not in alignment with how I wanted to live. But and the long story short is, I hit, so after my rock bottom in 2016, 2017 is still kind of bad. And then I got in a car accident uh, Christmas of 2017. And it was kind of that near death experience that shook me to my core. Coming home from a fishing trip with some friends and hit black ice doing about 100, you know, 60 miles an hour. And woke up because I was sleeping in the back seat, no seatbelt on because I was full of gear, you know, just tons of stuff from fishing, I had no seatbelt on. And I just remember spinning on the highway. And my brother was beside me. And I remember looking over at him and his eyes were, you know, the size of bottles. And they were, he was just looking at me. And we had that moment where we we're staring at each other. And 
and I thought that was it. And I was going to die with my brother and my kids would never see me again. My wife, my mom, my dad, like everybody. And I thought of it all in that probably three seconds, uh, which felt like forever. But luckily, angels, God, the universe, I don't care what you call it. Um, I was guided into that ditch nicely and easily. And uh, we all made it out unscathed. And but that moment was like, the switch, the trigger of like, okay, I need to do something. I need change or I'm going to die. Like I'm going to do it to myself or, you know, I, I just didn't know. I just knew something needed to change. So I got home that night crying with my, I went to my wife. I said, listen, I need to change. I need something. I need, I want to save my family. I want to save myself. I want to live a better life. And we started working on some things. I started reading some books. Uh, and while I was starting to read some books, you know, self-help type, personal development type books, podcasts, much like this one, um, just good vibes and trying to just change the focus. And I didn't really know much about it. But then I saw a uh, hypnotherapist online on a Facebook Live, and he started talking about healing trauma and how it can affect how you make decisions, you can affect depression, anxiety, and all these things. And everything started to like, just really make sense. And I was like, Whoa, like, I never thought hypnosis was anything more than a stage show, or, you know, the smoking thing, I heard a little bit about that. I'm just like, how can you heal from trauma. I'm like, okay, so I, need to, so I immediately looked this guy up, I basically stalked him, I tracked him down. I said, Look, dude, I seen what you're doing. I need to chat. My wife's like, go work with him. And I said, my gut was telling me there's more to this. There's a reason I was seeing this. And it was bigger than just working with him. And my gut was telling me, go pursue this. So it was the weirdest thing, like I from going from not knowing what the hell hypnosis is to immediately knowing listening to this guy that I had to do this for a living, or at least find out how what it's all about. Right. My wife's like, is this something you want to do? And I said, it's something I need to do. I don't know what it is, but it's like my heart screaming, go do this. I don't know why I don't have an explanation, but it was the biggest intuitive pull of my life. A week later, I was enrolled in hypnotherapy school. Oh my goodness. And not knowing what I was getting into. The beauty of it, not only doing what I get to do, but I got to do the healing in the training with a small group. We were a very small class. We got to work on each other and I got to do some amazing work which allowed me to see that all my suffering, my depression, even my drinking, even my, my habits that, you know, I would always look for outside gratification in so many ways. And I really realized that as I grew up, like whether it was attention from women or alcohol and drugs or stimulation from pornography or like anything outside of me, it was like my go-to. It was like, that's what made me feel happy but it was fake. I mean, it was just this dopamine hit. It was just this superficial happiness. But the reason, and I found out in hypno hypnosis, was the reason I love that is because I couldn't find the deeper love for myself. I just did not know how to love myself at a deep level or, or at all, really. I had no idea what self-love was. But the scary thing was, if you were to ask me, I would say, yeah, I love myself. Of course, I'm happy-go-lucky and all this. But deep down, there was so much pain and sadness, so much guilt and anger from trauma that happened when I was younger. And hypnosis allowed me to uncover all that. Hypnosis allowed me to make peace with that. And to the point where like, I didn't even know I was holding on to this stuff. It happened and it was like, okay, moving forward, let's block that out because that's uncomfortable. And that's what the subconscious does. It protects you emotionally. So it's no wonder I blocked that event out. I wasn't proud of it. It was something that hurt me dearly, deeply and other people too. So it's amazing how much we hold on to at the deeper level and not even know that we're carrying this 500 pound packet sack of potatoes on the back this whole time. Right. And we, we like to make almost light of our trauma. We go, oh, well, 
this happened, but so many people have it worse. Like, no, they have it worse than I do. I shouldn't even worry. Like, oh, it's nothing. Well, it's nothing to you now, maybe at 25, 35, 45. But when you were 10, was it nothing then? What was that? What right. was that? Right? What was that event to you at 10 or 15 or even 18? Such a valid point. The subconscious doesn't care or doesn't understand the difference in time between you being 25 and 10. It's still protecting the 10-year-old. That's the job. It doesn't see time. It just sees I'm protecting you here at 10 and you're still going to be protected. Well, meanwhile, instead of protecting you now, it's kind of sabotaging you as you're growing. You're, You're wanting to move forward. You're wanting to forgive. You're wanting to do all these things. But the subconscious is like, no, we're still here. And so hypnosis allows us to really go back and show the mind, show that part of that protection part of the mind to go, look, we can still protect Joey or Tara or, you know, whoever, but we can do it in a different way now. That was then. This is now. Let's move forward. Let's, you know, let's um, help him. Let's support him moving forward. And then we can show the subconscious and the subconscious goes, oh, well, I can stop doing what we've been doing. I can stop the depression and the the, the defense mechanisms or the anxiety and, and crowds or whatever it is that you're dealing with. And we can start doing something more productive. That is fascinating. <laughs> fascinating is right. Yes. I would have never thought you're saying it's protecting, you know, like, the 10 year old yeah. you that's so incredible yeah but it makes so much sense too right like i mean we've all had things happen to us as kids yep. right whether yep. it's su- something super silly like you know your mom yelled at you like sure like i literally can remember my mom telling me that i'm i was ignorant one day when i was like probably seven years old and i went downstairs and i was like i don't know what ignorant means so i opened up a dictionary and ignorant meant stupid i was like my mom called right? me stupid. You know? Right? That never and, left you. And as kids, like that's in your head. Like mm-hmm. it's, it means so much more now. I'm like, if my mom, my mom could call me stupid all day, every day now. And I'm like, whatever. But like, right. then that meant a whole lot more, right? It's funny you say the seven-year-old mark because first seven years, actually the last trimester of pregnancy up to seven years, it's proven that the, well, you hear this all the time. The kids' brains are like sponges, right? They take in everything, right? Well, actually it's de- it's bigger than that. They're they're actually in a different brain, a slower brain wave. So they're actually in a theta brainwave brain pattern. So they're actually in a state of hypnosis. So that whole seven years, they're in download, download. And it doesn't matter if it's good, bad, wrong, right. There is none of that. It doesn't have anything to be conscious of. So that whole first seven years is like, okay, dad's doing this. That's okay. Mom's doing this. This is what's uh, their relationship with money. Okay. Money doesn't grow on trees. We're always hard up. Well, then that kid gets that understanding or you start to make that your your reality and your program. So your first seven years, you are taking in everything around you at an amazing rate. It's amazing how that first seven years is how a child learns. It's by seeing and feeling. And so that's why those moments when you're young, it's like, boom, directly in the hard drive. It's not like bouncing off, like nothing happened. It was like directly. And when you add emotion to it, coming from like a paternal figure, a maternal figure, like saying the ignorant thing. It's like, ooh, that authority figure that my mom said that. And it's just like, it hits even harder and deeper. Like we all have these weird memories of when we're kids that don't really make sense, but they've stayed with us. And it's like, now you look at it like nothing, but why was it so important? Why was it so impactful? That's a perfect example. I mean, it's like, 
it's just fascinating that you got to this point now in your life where like, obviously like you're dedicating yourself to helping others deal yep. with their own trauma and their don't, their own stories of significant things that have happened in their lives that have stuck with them. Right. Yeah. Where did, where does this story begin? I guess, you know, like what, what's that defining moment for you? I would say around 17, 18, like I had a really good childhood. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. I say normal, but like my parents worked hard. They owned a business. They were gone a lot. Like I did take care of my younger brothers a lot, but it wasn't like, oh my God, mom and dad are never home. It was just, you know, it was a pretty middle-class country boy living. And I don't know, we lived in small towns and I don't know what it is about the culture about that but drinking was always such a big part of it at 14 i started drinking at 14 i was getting drunk at 14 at these parties and it was just like that's what we did and then right from there it was just like part of my life 15 16 more and more 17 18 was is legal age here and so we were drinking heavy and it was like we live for the party and so i just did it since i i can remember I think that was a big part of it. And I just, I don't know. I was always that, that guy that anybody can call up. You want to go party? I was the guy. I was like, yeah, like you'll, I'll never say no. It was just fun. But then after 18, I think it became more of a, a coping mechanism without even knowing it was a coping mechanism. It was like, I wasn't drowning myself in sorrow, but I don't know. It, and, and it was, it kind of just continued till I was in my early thirties and it was up and down. Like I have some good months and then I'd be really down and I've been on, I've been on antidepressants. They didn't do anything for me other than numb me. I couldn't feel anything. Didn't like those, but there was a few things that helped me along the way. And that was exercising, like weightlifting and getting in the gym, getting sweat. I always played sports. So I've always loved to stay active. That was always important. But yeah, I just kind of, and then it just kind of got gradually worse and worse. And then, you know, you start bringing kids into the equation. That's hard. You know, you're a dad now and you know, your relationship takes a hit because you're so busy and it just kind of got worse and worse until all of a sudden I was in such a dark place. It, it happened so quickly, <laughs> you know, over 12 years, 13 years, but it, right. it, felt, it felt like it happened like so quick. Did you at all notice in the moment, like, did you ever think to yourself or question like, am I depressed? Or was that just something that you were like going through the motions? So funny because I was going to just regular, seeing a regular therapist or counselor going through my divorce at the time or separation. And I was excited. I was like, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting separated and everything's gonna be fine. And, and I was excited and upbeat. And, and my counselor kept asking me, she's like, are you sure you're not depressed like are you sure there's nothing here that i'm like no like i'm good like i'm really good I'm, I'm this is what i need to do i need some greener pastures a new reset i need to go figure something out i'll be fine being a single dad it'll be great and blah 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 blah. and you know what some people make it work and it's fantastic but i look back at me like talking like that it was not logical it wasn't me i was so so depressed that i didn't know i was depressed and I remember my dad, like my dad's my best friend. And he kept asking me, he's like, are you sure you're okay? I'm like, yeah. Like there was some days where it didn't feel so great. But you know, I was putting, I don't know if I was putting on a mask. I don't know if I was playing a role. Most of the time I didn't think I was depressed until I got better. And then I was like, holy moly, I was depressed. Like I was really, really bad. So I think that's yeah. the scary part. A lot of people don't even know how, how bad it is or how dark it's gotten. Yeah, a lot of times it feels, I, I think for people like, this is just my normal. Yep. There's nothing wrong. This is just my normal. Living that like every day. I don't I don't need help. This is just my life. This is just what it is. Yep. And it's hard to see that until you come out the other side. 
and your baseline too, like I guess for some people, like what's your baseline? If this is just who you are, have always been, how do you know that it could be better or that you're low right now or whatever's going on? Like right. I first got diagnosed with depression at 21 by the doctor. But yeah, but like you said, it had been so long that I was like, no, I'm good. But I had never really known what that self-love was before, for probably since I'd have been probably in my late teens. And even then, I don't even know if I really understood it. So yeah, it was just your normal, like you said. It's just the way it is. Right. Many people are functioning adults who are still depressed. Oh, you know what yeah. I mean? Like mm -hmm. depression looks very different for every individual. It doesn't have to be just that you can't physically get out of your bed, right? It's so different for everyone and even different levels of it as you go through it. It's like a roller coaster. Some days there was there were days like that. I remember a two-week period right before right after my daughter was born where I was on the couch I swear it was like two weeks where I just didn't leave the couch I'd pace up and down the hallway and I'd be in this complete anxiety filled state for like two weeks I wasn't eating I wasn't work like I wasn't doing anything that I like to do normally so there was those moments where yeah I'd rather be in bed or not even doing anything but then there was days where it's like oh, I feel pretty good go to work and do my thing but still depressed, like <laughs> wasn't wasn't good at all. Right. Take us through a little bit more, like how you were coping with alcohol. Like, why was that? Why do you think you went towards alcohol? Or the culture, you know, of the small town? Yeah, I think it was just something that I've always known. It was easy to access, number one. It was like, it wasn't like I was going to buy bags of cocaine because that wasn't around. Like, it wasn't a thing. Like, it was just alcohol was alcohol and it was easy to get to. Some in your mom's cabinet and there's everybody's doing it. So it's like, okay, well, and it makes me feel good. And so it was just kind of the natural coping mechanism for me. It was never an issue. It was just for fun. But then it just became, well, well I'll go out with the boys and, you know, go play around a golf and go out or go for drinks after work. If I was going out, I knew I was getting out to get loaded. I didn't do anything half-assed. Like it was like, let's have fun. Let's pay for it in the morning. It's fine. I'll deal with it. And then I'd be depressed for like five solid days, like really bad. Like they, the, my depression was like amplified by 10 after I drank. And I knew that. And I'd, but I'd still go through those cycles of like sabotaging myself. I'd be like, oh, everything's kind of good. Let's go drink now. It, it's funny. That's how that, how that works. Like you can actually see these cycles of self-sabotage happening and you still convince yourself it's a good idea. So when you were going through this with your wife at the time like what was her response at at the start of all of this like we were getting married so my son was born in december 2014 we got engaged our summer of 2015 and i was okay then like okay i mean i was still depressed but i wasn't at my the worst and so you know i had my baby before getting married but i always knew like it is what it is and we were like okay well, let's get married okay so got engaged and we're like well what are we gonna do let's do a destination wedding. Like we love to travel. We've traveled through Asia and Australia and South Central America tons before kids on um, in our you know backpacking and let's have a destination wedding. So we went to see a, a travel agent, got a package together, and we ended up having I think almost thirty guests, thirty five guests come to Mexico. Well, before Mexico is when everything kind of fell apart for me. I was like, oh my god, like I'm getting, I'm going to get married, and I don't want to get married. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I was panicking. Like, it was awful. And then I dropped the bomb on her. And I said, look, I don't know if I, I can do this. And I remember sitting in the, in the kitchen with her. We're both crying and going, we have 
30 some guests that have paid deposits to come to our wedding. What the hell do we do? She's like, she's, she's gutted. Like she has no, what, what do you mean? Like what's going on? And I just said, like, it's me. It's not you. Like the whole cliche, you know, it's not you. It's me, but it was, it was, it was all me. It was like, I loved her dearly. She's in my eyes. She's way too good for what I was bringing to the table. And I said, I don't know what to do. So we hummed and hawed about it. And we're like, we got to go and do this. So we, put on our face and we got to Mexico and we had amazing friends and family with us. And we're like, well, let's make the best of this and we'll deal with it when we get home and we'll see what happens. So there we are in Mexico, me feeling anxious since like, as soon as I touched down. So what do I do? Get drunk for seven days, basically the whole time. I mean, the friends that were there were a good time. They were all there to have a party anyway. So it was easy for me to say, well, I'm just having a party with everybody who's here with us. But I mean, I rarely gave attention to my wife. I mean, we had a little guy running around. So I was with him a little bit, but I just had to numb what was going on. Like I was basically lying to my friends and family right to their face going, thanks for coming. But this is awkward. Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you later. So I remember the day of the ceremony, we took some pictures and you can see them. Like if I showed you my wedding pictures, you can see how like hollow my eyes are and how like it's just not me there. I look back and it's hard for me yeah. to look at those pictures. But um, I remember the day of the ceremony, taking pictures and then running back to my buddies or to my all my groomsmen who were with me. And I just started pounding beers. Like I think I had like seven or eight beers just to get numb enough to go through with this. Because the ceremony, my friend was the one doing, you know, doing the ceremony for us. And I was just like, my family's looking at me. And I remember holding my wife's hands while we were you know, repeating our vows. And I remember I just, I just stared down at the ground. I couldn't even look at her. I couldn't look at anybody. And I was half drunk and I was just like, let's just get this over with so I can walk away and not feel this guilt and this sadness and this like, I can't believe how much of a piece of garbage I am right now. Like it, it was awful. Like I love these people who were there. Right. And I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. And that was the reality of it. So everybody had a great time except for us. And my dad was the only one who else, who else knew that at the time. So he was gutted too. He couldn't, you know, anxiety was through the roof for my dad trying to deal with this. And so we get home and we basically get back to it's not happening. So we'll just kind of slowly see what separate rooms for now. We have a house and obviously together and it was that and that and one night of, you know, passion and uh, one time and I, I get her pregnant. And so there's baby number two on the way. A few weeks later, we're driving to work because we worked at the same place at the time. And she's like, I got to tell you something. And I just knew, I knew. And I'm like, I'm like, what? She's, and she didn't want to say it. I'm like, you're pregnant. And she started bawling. And I remember how mad I was. I was so angry. Yeah. The thought of like the thoughts going through my head. I'm like, I had everything figured out. I was leaving and it wasn't going to be this way. And, you know, now I have another kid to worry about. And I was so bitter. And, and I was like, oh, man, I just remember being so gutted and just but not like sad, just angry. And at her, I was pissed off at her, pissed off at myself. And it kind of just went that way. And it was like, okay, well, I guess we're seeing where this goes and went through the motions through the summer, still not knowing where we stood, just kind of staying there, being supportive through the pregnancy. And November 22nd comes around and my wife's water breaks. We run to the hospital and another, this one's always hard. I can never get through the story without crying, but we go to the hospital Everything's normal. Get her in a beautiful birthing room. Like we had the most amazing hospital, the most amazing staff. My wife's having contractions and, you know, one nurse comes in. She's like, okay, I got to go get someone. She goes and gets, so the doctor comes in and she starts doing her thing. And I'm just there sitting there waiting, thinking it's going to be the same as last time. No big deal. There's a tub there to, for her to use. And she was about to go in the tub and doctor comes back 
with another doctor and then they start talking and I'm like, something's up. I'm like, what's going on? I hear the, the, the monitors going off a little, they're a little funny. Like there's something's not normal. They go to another, there's another doctor that comes in and we're like, what is going on? There's three doctors. Like this is odd to begin with. It's a small hospital. There shouldn't even be three doctors there. Okay. There's a, this is a small yeah. hospital. <laughs> and so then my st- I start to panic. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, we're taking her in. I'm like, taking her where? She's got to go to the OR now. I'm like, what? And there's this doctor with her, his hand pushing in, like the baby's coming and the, and the doctor's pushing back and they're telling my wife to stop pushing. You have to stop pushing. You have to stop pushing the baby's not in position. So the, the baby came down face first instead of flipped. Like, you know how they would come down on the back, yeah. kind of slide out. Well, my, my baby was face first and her neck or her chin was caught on my wife's pelvic bone. And so when my wife oh was, my so gosh. when, so when my wife was pushing, it was hyperextending her, my baby's neck. And the, every time she would push the heart monitor would go through the roof and it would actually, and it was just all over the map. I didn't know that at the time, but that's what was happening. And so she was, the doctor was pushing the baby back in while my wife was trying to push her out. And she was like, you have to stop pushing. You have to stop pushing. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? What's going on? And then within 30 seconds, it was like, they rushed her out. I was standing there going, what? And, and the one nurse throws gives throws some scrubs at me. She goes, put these on. I'm like, okay. And then they send her through the ER, the OR, into the OR. The doors shut, and they're like, you can't come in here. I'm like, whoa! If you just gave me scrubs, like, what's going on? Right. And I'm stuck outside the doors alone. And my wife and my daughter were rushed away, and I have no clue what's going on. And I'm just like, okay, whoa! Can someone tell me? And this amazing nurse came You're back. Fine. Yeah, and it was just like the most hopeless feeling I've ever had and uh, the nurse comes back one of the nurses and she's just like she sits with me and she's like okay this is what happened so she explained to me what was going on with the baby's head and she's like your daughter your wife's in the OR they had to do emergency c-section I'll stay with you you can't go in I'm sure everything will be fine and I have no clue what's going on we were in a such a small hospital such a small hospital that there was usually one doctor on at night Right. Just it's just there's a town of like maybe a thousand people, 1500 people, but it's all a region, a small region where the kind of doctors bump, bounce around small hospitals. So there's usually one person on that day. It was actually oh, so it was daytime by then. But the surgical team happened to be in that small hospital having a meeting, a monthly meeting. So without them, without them being there, like I could have lost both. I've been so lucky. And they were there. <laughs> so she got rushed in and they cut her open without her even being out. Like she was still taking, like she was not, she passed out from the pain. She didn't even pass out from the drugs. They cut her open right there. They had no time when they, they took my baby out. The The surgeon told me later that another minute and it could have been the complete opposite of what happened. And um, I can't believe, you know, how lucky I'm sitting out there waiting and waiting and the nurse comes back and she's like, everyone's fine. Your, your wife's, she should be fine. The baby's out. She's okay. We don't know exactly what's happening, but everything happened and like it should. And then they, uh, wow. so about 15, 20 minutes later, the nurse comes out with my baby and you know, my wife didn't even get to hold her, but I did. And, uh, she looks like she got in a car accident, you know, it's, Poor little thing. Looks like she got tossed off a ladder, you know, like just hit every rung on the way down. She looked like she got in a 12-round fight because when the doctor was pushing, 
I mean, her fingers and, and thumbs and her eyes. So she had a black eye and she had cuts on her cheeks. And, and like, it's not how you want to see your newborn. No. So I held my baby and I have I just held her so tight. And I couldn't believe how angry I was that my wife was pregnant. You know, it's just the most beautiful moment of my life. And so, you know, about a half hour later, my wife, I find out my wife's okay. And she gets rushed to the recovery room and we have our baby there and you know, we still don't know if the baby's okay because the head was hyperextended for so long. We were waiting and like the doctor said, it looked fine, but we'll have to see over the next few months. And, you know, because that's, it could be, you know, cerebral palsy. It could be a bunch of different complications. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so that was another big traumatic moment for me. I think I obviously need to do some work around that still. How amazing that the surgical team happened to be meeting Crazy. there. I mean. And if you were to understand the small hospital like it's just like how and the most like, i'm talking the best surgeons in that area in the province like they happen to be there and without that i don't even want to think of what could have happened right i mean I, of course like terrible things happen all over the place right but in this moment like this moment like it was just meant to happen that way you know that little girl was so meant she was coming to us whether we liked it or not like you know like right. you could have thrown everything yeah, right. she she was She's like, sorry, whatever happens, doesn't matter. I'm coming. So it's like, okay. Yeah. And it just showed that, you know, like, you know, that really restored my faith in, in God or, you know, I always had this connection, but I blocked it off a lot during my life. But now it's like, I know there's a higher power, no doubt in my mind. And that's just another moment of just like, wow, when it's meant to happen, it's going to happen. Yeah. And it's, and she's amazingly healthy. She's vibrant, athletic. She's crazy. My life's just so beyond amazing it's it's hard to see myself back then to think like i could be here right you were saying you know like at the, at the time like you had this picture perfect life yeah but it wasn't really you weren't taking that in right like you weren't receiving that you know like no, and you weren't mentally there to feel it you know but the reason was and i found out in the hypnosis was i wasn't worthy of love because of the, what, what happened that trauma was I wouldn't allow myself to have the love for my wife and my kids. I didn't deserve it. And I had this underlying belief that was subconscious deep, deep down that I wasn't worthy of love. So I wouldn't love myself. So I'd poison myself and beat myself up and do all the stupid things that didn't help me. And I wouldn't allow the true love around me to come in. So I would go to alcohol and just attention from other girls because that was easy. It was, you know, just a little bit. I didn't have to get too attached. I could take that for a little bit and then I'd push it all away. But the real love for my family and everything, I was sure. like, no, I don't deserve that. So hypnosis allowed me to forgive myself, go love myself, go make peace with all the garbage that was I was holding on to for nothing. And then I was like, okay, I get to love myself again. So that was all after, obviously, my daughter was born. Uh, I got to do all that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to think where I'm at uh, only what, three, four years ago. You know, it's wild. It is wild. And yeah. We all can do this together, right? Yeah. Like, I think there's so many good people in the world. And right now we're seeing a lot of negativity sure. just out there. You never feel, hear about the feel good stuff. Why don't you put something right. amazingly beautiful on the front page for, for two months yes. and see what happens to the world. But no, you're right. shedding light. You're shedding light on oh, all exactly. the stuff that isn't going right. Of course it's going to happen. Do that in your life for, for two hours or two months and see what happens. Focus on all the, the stuff that isn't going right. You want to go into depression? <laughs> yeah. It's one thing I tell my clients. I'm like, stop. If you read the paper, stop. If you watch the news, don't watch it. You know, yes. honestly, it doesn't help you. Right. It just makes you get angry or frustrated and cause separation. Yeah. Love myself. Do what I love to do. Go outside. Go for a run. 
go work out, spread some love because geez, the planet needs it right now. And uh, it's yes. just been wild. And that's kind of how I got on TikTok, just kind of just throwing things, wanted to just, you know, raise the vibration a little bit because people are, I don't know, we're, we're just stuck in this weird weird time right now yeah you know like that piece of like self-love and self-care social media is huge for that i think you know there's some a lot of downsides to technology and stuff and some of the apps and stuff you know but there's a lot of awareness around that now and i think you're seeing a lot more support exactly exactly right let's talk a little bit about like the self-care self-love type of um, journey that you went on you know for you was it strictly like the hypnotherapy that you went through that kind of got you there that was a major piece that was the healing that I needed to do on the stuff in the past. So yeah, it was probably the most profound part of my healing, but I had already started to climb out of it before I I went there. But I don't, you know, without that healing at that level, I don't think I would have been able to keep moving up. And you know what, I didn't really love myself yet. It was like, okay, there was still this cloud over me, but I started to do some things differently. I, I got rid of my cell phone in the accident. I lost my phone. My cell phone was a big issue at the time in my relationship. I wasn't being honest with her. I was talking to other girls. I was doing these things that just weren't in alignment with the marriage and trust and everything like that. So I knew that and she knew that. And so I was like, okay, I lost my phone in the accident. I'm like, this is a great opportunity to ditch it. So I ditched my iPhone, I got a Nokia slide touchpad uh, text phone that had no data capabilities. It was like $21 on Amazon, it allowed me to text and call. So I had that for emergencies. And I went about six months with that. And then during that, I was like, what am I going to do now? Because I spent so much time. I had a lot of downtime at work. I spent so much time just mindlessly scrolling, you know, refreshing my Instagram feed every four minutes to make sure I didn't get a new like or something stupid. And I was like, what am I going to do? Well, I said, I'm going to get better. And I didn't even know what that meant. I'm like, whatever it is, I'm going to get better at something. So I started searching online what are the best like books at the time about mental health and just, you know, getting out of a slump. And the first book that came, I ordered on Amazon was You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero. And I remember reading the first chapter and like going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like I couldn't believe the way she wrote things. It all resonated so deeply with me. And I finished that book in like, I don't know, maybe two days. And I was just like, you know, give me more. Like I feel good already. Like what's going on? And so I read another book. I can't remember how many books I read in the next three to four months, but there was some amazing ones. And and that led me to, yeah, to all of a sudden seeing Adrian Wesley, who's my one of my mentors. He's a clinical hypnotherapist also. And that's when everything started to click, you know, and meditation. So meditation to me is the biggest life hack anybody can bring into their life. It's much like praying to someone who's religious. It's But it's a little different where it's when you learn to meditate regularly and you learn how to do it, it changes everything. You want to quiet your mind. You want to stop the chatter. You want to reconnect with yourself at the deepest level. Meditate for 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day. It will change your whole world. So that's another thing that I've always, you know, I brought back to my life and I try to do it daily. You know, positive affirmations, gratitude practices is another thing I try to do every day. You know, when you're when you're in that frequency and vibration of gratitude and you really feel that in your heart, there's nothing that can beat that feeling. There's nothing that can beat a grateful heart. Yeah. Nothing. When you feel that, not just say yeah. that you're grateful. That's easy. But when you f- look at your kids running around or you, you know, you have you're sitting with your friends and you're having that deep conversation and, and you and you take a stop, like you almost take a minute to take a look from a higher perspective and just go, wow, what a moment. Like, look how much I have in my life. Look how beautiful this moment is or 
It could be a tree or a sun or a sunset. Like I've learned to really appreciate those little moments. And when you feel that, I think I don't know. It's hard to beat that 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 energy that that frequency when you're when you're there. So those are a few things I, I try to put in my life every day. And I tell my clients to really dive into too. Nowadays, there's quite a bit more out there about how to take care of yourself a little bit better. Yeah. But I think so many people still are at that point where for some people, there still is that like negative connotation that like you're taking care of your mental health. Personally, of course, I don't agree with that. I think like mental health is just a part of your like spiritual, physical health, yes. emotional health. It's yeah. all the same thing, yeah. right? And like the people that you see, I guess, I'm sure you come across different clients that are from all walks of life. Oh, yeah. a, mental health doesn't have to just be like some clinical, like you're schizophrenic. It could, it could be anything from depression to yeah. body issues yeah. to a variety of things like the stigma of mental health needs to change quite a bit to to accept it more right For sure yeah no i deal with everyone from athletes to very successful real estate investors and you know to the middle class you know stay-at-home mom who is burnt out and can't you know can't give herself enough love because she feels burnt out and giving herself to everyone else and she doesn't know how to you know give her what she wants and Everybody, it's, and I bet you the most successful CEOs or, or entrepreneurs, we all deal with stuff. We all have uh, baggage and there's a lot of really cool stuff you can, that's out there now though. And there's a lot of options that if this doesn't resonate with you, there's this option. And there's a lot of amazing holistic and natural ways to do this, which is even better in my opinion. You know, if you can do this without taking a bunch of drugs that have, a, you know, three pages of side effects, I think you're better off. You know, um, I'm not saying it doesn't work for somebody. I'm not saying it doesn't have its place, but I believe it's far too prescribed before asking the right questions. Like, what are you eating? How is your lifestyle? Like, are you drinking like I was drinking? Like, you know, like, yeah. are, you take, are you actually taking care right. of yourself? Yeah. Or do you want to just take these pills so you can numb that you feel anything yeah there's there's a lot out there now though it's it's pretty cool and it's nice to be a part of it joey i guess like what advice would you give someone who is who's kind of like feeling lost like when you were in the midst of all of this and feeling like you didn't deserve your wife and you didn't deserve this life that you have is there any advice that you would give somebody that's in the trenches like that well it depends because i hope they know they're in the trenches like that's what the scary part with me was like i didn't know i think a big thing would be ask your, the people around you if you think something's not right like ask the people that you really love if they think something's off because they're gonna know and really have an open mind that you might not be in the right state to be thinking logically because you're not you're not working from the same part of your brain when you're when you're in those states uh the logical part of the brain just isn't working the same and so i would say yeah you know what like really if you're feeling down look for help number one if you know you're not feeling right be vulnerable like just know that with a little bit of help with a little bit of vulnerability your whole life can change so quickly it, it gets better i promise the only time it won't is when you give up like i said if you would have told me at the time that my life would be where it's at right now and i called you the biggest liar it's magic it's absolute magic but it's because i got the help and there's amazing healers out there there's amazing people that want to help don't be afraid to ask because i think that's the biggest thing and i think mostly with men that i find is like there's still that suck it up tough it out you're gonna be fine you're supposed to be the provider or the the man of the house whatever that stigma is around that that's causes a lot of male suicides just because they don't feel comfortable being vulnerable they they don't they think it's weakness man i find so much power in crying like i have no issues crying on this podcast like 
I've embraced yeah. that because when you, when you're allowed to let that stuff flow, there's so much power and strength in that. But it's when people get in trouble, when they just, you know, keep throwing more into the bucket and it's going to burst at the seams eventually. What do you think the biggest thing you've learned about yourself is? That I'm worthy, that I'm good enough, that I'm beyond amazing at who I am and what I do. And I've learned I'm an amazing human being and that I can, I have so much to offer that I'm unique, that I'm, no one's going to do what I'm doing. Like I'm doing it. Um, there's a, there's a list. I would never answer that question before. I can, I can list this. I'll list you a thousand things because yeah, I just, I don't know. I've, I've just learned to embrace who I am. And that feels really good. Honestly, that's like such a great answer because that is something that I think yes. every single person, you know, like everybody has ups and downs in their lives. Everybody has bad days and good days. Oh, yeah. But like the overall theme that each of us should be thinking is like, we are all amazing human mm -hmm. beings. We all deserve the happiness that you can be given, oh, right? Yeah. Or that you can receive, you mm -hmm. know? What do you think has been the hardest part about your journey? The hardest part was having was was looking back and looking at how what I was willing to do like what I was what I thought was okay what I thought was the right thing so sometimes looking back is hard I still hold some guilt around my daughter I definitely hold some guilt around her there's some work to be done there so I think the guilt yeah I think the guilt for sure like I don't have the old trauma I've really done the work like I'm really free from that I have so much gratitude for going through everything I've gone through even the hardest stuff but the guilt around the anger when my daughter, you know, when my wife told me my daughter was was coming, it was like anger and frustration because I thought I had everything lined up that everything was going to go this way. And it was like, but that happened to be the biggest gift. And so I, I think the guilt for sure is, is, is a tough one still. What do you hope the takeaway is of your story for our listeners? Uh, I don't want to say the cliche, don't ever give up. But it's like, those cliche things that I heard as a kid mean so much more now. <laughs> like when you go right. through these things. Uh, no, I think the biggest thing that people should take away is when you learn to love yourself, you start to get glimpses into what it feels like to be unstoppable. But you need to find a way to like really love you for who you are. Forgive yourself, embrace your journey, but self-love is the beginning of everything. I don't know if you could really love others fully if you don't really love yourself, like at, a, at the deepest level, like unconditionally. You know, I don't love everything about me. Like I'm still working on me. I, I'm not perfect, but I've learned to embrace the imperfection and really, yeah, just embrace that whole thing. So yeah, love yourself. And I know it's not as easy as like, oh, okay, I'm just going to love myself today. That's the ticket. I think the happiness is like heal, let go. Yeah, love yourself because you'll see amazing things happen. Joy, you hands down are such an amazing human being. The fact that you have gone through this journey that you've been on, this like wild ride that you've been on through depression and through, you know, the start of a difficult marriage at first. Mm -hmm. And you've come out on the other side and here you are, you found what you were meant to do in your life. Mm -hmm. You are so vulnerable, you are so honest, and you're open. And especially as a man, I mean, you're somebody that people can honestly look at you and, you know, you're a role model for, for, for a variety of different people. So we thank you more than anything for being willing to come and share your story with us. Um, and for all of our listeners, we're going to make sure that we go ahead and um, share Joey's information with you so that if you would like to reach out to him and um, have a consultation or talk to him a little bit about what hypnotherapy is go for it he is fantastic um but before we go joey we want to go ahead and ask you just some fun little pop questions yeah the first question is 
Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake? Ooh, you know what? I like both. I honestly, yeah, no, I do. I, I used to have this whole ego thing where I only listen to this certain music and I'd like, like, I only listen to country and I only listen to Eric Church or I only listen to rap and yeah. I listen to this, but I love all music. I think they're yeah. both extremely talented and I would, who wouldn't want to be either of those guys? Those guys are crazy talented. Um, I'm, I can't, I can't pick. Oh, okay. I'll, I think I'll still take Timberlake on that though. <laughs> all right. <laughs> if you could meet anyone living or dead, who would it be? Can I do living and dead? Sure. <laughs> yes. Dead, I'm going to go with Ram Dass. If you guys don't know who Ram Dass is, check him out. He's cool. The other day, Tara just sent me a, like an entire quote from him that it's amazing. Yeah. His journey is wild. If you want to, like, that guy's journey was crazy, uh, but he was super cool. Uh, living, I think I'd go with Dr. Bruce Lipton. Check him out. He's cool. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is another fun one. What is your most used emoji? The heart. Definitely the heart. Yeah. The heart one. Yeah, honestly, that's the one I use the most. What is your stance on pineapple on pizza? Fresh pineapple. Oh, only. really? Fresh. Oh, all day. All day. <laughs> all day. All right, last question. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? I'm an adrenaline junkie. I think I'd have to fly. Yeah, I'd It'd like, I'd love cool. that. I'd have yes. to. Yeah. It's classic, but I have to go with that one. Joey, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. We had so much fun with you. You are so much fun to talk to, and we learned so much today. <laughs> but mostly, thank you for being unapologetically you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I didn't think I'd cry so darn much, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, un yeah, that's, that's me being un unapologetically me, for sure. There you go. We're so happy you joined us, and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please subscribe, rate, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean so that we can continue to inspire you.